0: Here's the thing. One thing about capacity is it's not about doing more. It is actually about getting more done with less energy. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life and how you can do the same. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of the Elevate podcast. Today, we're going to be flipping the script as it's the U.S. launch of my new book, Elevate Your Team, which is essentially the sequel to Elevate. Uh, In Elevate, I introduced the capacity building framework, which was about improving individually. And in Elevate Your Team, I talk about that same framework, but how you can use it to improve an entire organization. Elevate Your Team offers a great playbook for employee-led growth, which I think is the anecdote to a lot of the burnout and turnover we see today, and it should be a great playbook to show leaders how to grow their teams holistically. I really wanted to share some of these concepts with the Elevate audience, as it's very aligned to some of the stuff we talk about regularly with my guests, including improvement, leadership, organizational culture, and pushing limits. However, since I can't interview myself, I'm very excited to be joined by a special guest host today, my friend Whitney Johnson. Whitney is a distinguished business thinker, best-selling author of several books on leadership and personal growth, and host of the popular Disrupt Yourself podcast. Longtime listeners will remember her from two previous episodes on her show. And because she's one of the most well-regarded thinkers on driving professional growth, she's the perfect person to host this conversation. Whitney, welcome, and thanks for agreeing to guest host today.
1: Robert, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And it it will be fun to turn the tables on you just a little bit. So as you said, we're here to discuss your new book, Elevate Your Team, which is available wherever books are sold in the United States. And as you know, I talk a lot about grow your people to grow your company. But what what if your company's growth is outstripping the growth of your people? Then what? So what I loved about this book, and I think all of your listeners are going to love, is that you build on your experience as a highly successful entrepreneur. You've grown Acceleration Partners by 4,000% over the past decade. Okay, Noah, everybody, he's not going to tell you this, but 4,000%. He's built this amazing culture. There's a very low employee turnover rate. It's well below the industry average, and they're building capacity, 80% of their leaders' Are coming from within. So, Robert, I want to know what your playbook is. I think it's going to be very exciting to be able to talk about what do we need to do if we want to scale a business. So, are you blushing yet?
0: <laughs> uh, I'm good. Although well, most you can't see it on the on audio, so that's good. <laughs> a
1: bit. Okay, let's get to it. Um, uh, at the very beginning of the book, you you start by telling these two parallel stories. You talk about how you're rapidly scaling. Acceleration partners. And then you're also shopping your second book to publishers. Talk to us about how these two things converged.
0: Yeah, you know, a lot of times the obvious thing is in front of us. Um, I, I've talked about the story before, but I was, you know, trying to sell this Friday Forward compilation book, and uh, I was told people aren't very interested in in compilations. And I met an agent at the time who said, you know, I love the writing on this, but like what what's the story behind these stories? Sort of what's the through theme? And I spent like 9 months to a year answering that question. And I and I came up with sort of the the principles of the book Elevate and and the four capacities. And that was really about myself personally and what worked for me from a aspect of of leadership development what I had seen in in others. But at the same time we were going down this sort of parallel growth crisis in the organization. And uh, we were kind of stumbling and growing faster than our people. And I couldn't specifically figure out why some people were rising to the challenge and others were hitting a wall. And not to give it all away, but basically, I realized the way that we had figured that out was to bring the capacity building same concept to the organization. And then when I looked at how we were training people, the things that we were doing, how we kind of decided uh, to approach a holistic aspect of training, it was actually the same four things. And that was sort of a aha or a oh, duh moment, <laughs> I guess it, at some point as the solution to to the problem.
1: It's interesting because the very opening line of your book is, I was trying to decide if I was a genius or an idiot. And I think it's that's a great question of, of that realization of, we've been doing all this work on personal capacity building and your recognition of, oh, this just applies to capacity building for the organization as well.
0: Yeah. When I think about once we sort of kind of decided to go in on that, how we were organizing the training and and I looked at how we were doing these different trainings, it was literally along the same four elements. So yeah, it was it was an interesting confluence of, it wasn't all just personal and professional, but I think it may be the difference in people want to understand the distinction around sort of individual leadership changes versus organizational and institutional changes to to kind of elevate, <laughs> to use lack of a better word.
1: Well, and what I love, so I'm going to actually read this because I think this is so powerful. And this, to me, is the thesis of the entire book. And you say, an employee's growth trajectory has nothing to do with their experience or even their performance in their current role. The most important predictor of future performance is an employee's ability to improve at a high rate, irrespective of their starting point.
0: Yeah. And and there's a story at the beginning on how I like was struggling with this and, and to figure this out. I, I think anyone who's been in a growth organization starts hiring these experienced people <laughs> who've been there and down the road. And then a lot of the times they just don't work out. And there's a variety of reasons. And and I go into this deeper, but I think the real epiphany was experience is great, but if you're growing quickly enough, and, and there's a graph that describes this you will, you will overcome anyone's experience, particularly if that experience took them forever to get, and then it's kind of fixed at where it is. So we realized early on, and I think this is both a build and a buy. You have to buy people that have high aptitude, but then you can also coach and improve people. And we just found time and time again that the person who was inside the organization who showed that aptitude, who was willing to get better, just kind of outperformed. And someone said this to me years ago, Sales, I think a lot of times makes things really clear <laughs> versus other functions, things in sales functions. And they said, look, if you were hiring for a job and let's just pretend that, you know, we wanted someone to hit a five million dollar book of business. And candidate one took 12 years of experience, but they're at a five million dollar book of business. And candidate two has a three and a half million dollar book of business, but they did it in like three years. They went from a million to three million. And so I, I need someone who uh, actually, for, change that example. They Let's say they have the same book of business, but someone did it in 10 years and someone did it in three years. I think like the historic approach to that or someone would say, look, Whitney's got all of this experience. Don't I want her? And I would say, if I'm going to need a sales leader, I'm hiring for this year. I need 5 million. But if I need a $7 million book of business leader in a couple of years, the person who figured out how to get from zero to three in two years or three and a half probably will do that better than the person who took 10 years to do that. So again, I ideally we'd have experience and aptitude. And there's some things where you just need experience, right? You can't take a high aptitude person and throw them in a CFO of a you know public company. But a lot of these businesses are more growth oriented. And I, I just saw over and over again, why experience could be problematic if aptitude wasn't part of the equation.
1: Mm-hmm. You have to have both. All right. So let's talk about, we, you've talked about capacity building. And I, I want to, before we go there, tell us about this 50% rule.
0: Oh, yeah. So as we were growing really fast, so we were growing about 30% a year for almost a decade at some point. And if you understand the rule of 72, right, that would mean your organization's almost doubling every two, two and a half years. And we had a, coaches or different people heard a different variation of, every time you double your organization, you will break 50% of your processes and 50% of your people. And we were kind of finding that to be true. I think we were doing better than that. But I was sitting there thinking, that's not how I want to grow a business. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to have to fire or lose half of the i'll fix the processes but i don't want to have to fire half lose half of these people every two two and a half years like how do we how do we beat the odds on that because i think statistically that rule is probably true and that's a tall task to ask people to get uh 50 percent better but we were doing better than that and i think that sort of came uh there are a lot of different ways to build a business you know i did not want to build a business the silicon valley way where it's like let's grow as fast as we can and burn out all the people along the way and just you know i i use a chart sometimes of car tires you know you do you do a lap around the track and you change out the tires like like we want to grow with these people how do we do that
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right so so how do you do that you've done it how do you do it tell us about the capacity building within an organization
0: sure so as i said before i think it's really applying this same uh framework of capacity building so spiritual intellectual physical emotional uh, i'll just highlight each at a high level and i think some of the things what's different maybe about about individual versus you know we talk about and elevate your team organizationally so spiritual i talk a lot about understanding your core values and your purpose and sort of developing authentic leadership in this context it's how do you do that for all of the leaders in your organization how do you help them understand their values their why their strengths what they're good at because we always said there's never a prototypical like AP leader. We don't have a model of a leader. I think people are the best leaders if they can understand who they are authentically. And when they're trying to not lead from an authentic core, they're often not that successful. So we're actually trying to help people go down that journey of like having these breakthroughs on, oh, this is who I am and what I value. And by the way, all of these things, and I should say this is about the holistic aspect of it show dramatic improvement outside the workplace at the same time they show inside the workplace, which is what's fun and enjoyable for me. Um, Intellectual is, again, instead of personal discipline and and learning and thinking and and that sort of things, it's how do you do this organizationally? How do you create a culture that pushes people out of their comfort zone, a culture of learning, a culture that learns how to give feedback and accept feedback, um, have difficult conversations, and really be the type of place where people can better routines, better habits, kind of overall. So so that's intellectual, physical, again, really clear personally, kind of mental and physical health. Well, the organization can be highly <laughs> responsible or or you know, for people's physical and emotional health in terms of how it's structuring work, is it giving anyone a break, particularly in our new remote and hybrid work, like do people, are they getting any time off to rest and reflect? And you know, I talk about the story of Marissa Meyer and her, her tenure at Yahoo, but it's also just more work doesn't equal better outcomes. I think we've we've seen that and you have this huge reshift right now of people trying to now focusing on efficiency and what's actually working and not just putting more dollars on on more problems. And then the last one, emotional capacity. Again, I think this was a lot about uh, individually how you react to challenging situations, mindset, quality of relationships. Those are all really important institutional things in an organization. I think probably one of the biggest is psychological safety. Right, that if emotional capacity is trust and vulnerability on a one to one scale, psychological safety is like how does that like scale at an organizational? level? How do you teach people to push their comfort zones organizationally? And how, how do you develop kind of ownership, agency, and control? So the people in the un- organization look internally <laughs> around things. I've seen people, you know, this is becomes a cultural thing. Organizations that look internally for what they can do better and fix and organizations that always blame um, external factors. So that's some of the examples on the spectrum and how this sort of framework changes from individual to collective.
1: All right, so you've got spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional.
2: Correct.
1: All right, let's do a little bit of a dive into each of these. Um, Let's start with spiritual, because I I know that this this is something that you have thought a lot about and done a lot of work on, which is... Spiritual, I think oftentimes we think of spiritual in the context of, of a, a religion Religious, or a yeah. faith. And, I tried a
0: hundred different words. I couldn't yeah. come up with a better one.
1: Well, and, and that's okay. <laughs> but I think it's. I think what you're saying is this is helping people understand their core values and purpose. And you also said that by doing that, you've seen some interesting results outside of work. Do you have a story that you can share around that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I one of the coolest things for me, so I... After figuring out my personal core values, and I talked about this in Elevate, like I like to joke, like everything when people read my resume, almost ninety percent of it is from the year after I figured out my core values. It just really changed, you know, everything. There wasn't really a process for it, so I actually decided we're going to start doing this with their, our leaders, our up and coming leaders, and I used them as my guinea pig. And I took what I did and I built it into like a system, which eventually became the course because people were asking me about it. And after four or five classes, I was like, this really works. And I think people were a little surprised. They're like, wait, why? You want us to spend a half day at an offsite, like figuring out our personal core values? Like, what, (laughs) what does this have to do with the organization? But I've just seen some like incredible breakthroughs for people and just the realization of so here's one that comes up a lot that is common that is for some people in a value. So they have some core value around trust. And having done this enough and done the work around the why stuff with Gary Sanchez, I've learned to ask the question, and I don't ask the specifics, but if I really sense that there's a core value around trust, it's say, hey, Whitney, you know, it seems like there's a deep thing on trust here. I'm not going to ask you what, but did you have some sort of deep violation of trust at some point in your life or your childhood? And usually their eyes will start welling up, and they don't even have to answer the question, and and so... When we dig into this, and again, how it plays in a leader, we find that, look, someone with where trust is that important to them, first of all, they're not good at communicating to other people on their team that trust is important to them. And the other thing is that if you're on that person's team, and this is what we find every time, and you're five minutes late to a meeting, you kind of miss a deadline, they can't find you at two or three in the afternoon when they're looking for you, that strikes deep fears of that this is someone who can't be trusted. And what happened is these leaders had put these people on their team in a penalty box. One person was like, no, no, they're not in a penalty box. Like, so explain, well, they're just in this thing where like, I don't really trust them and they have to earn like, no, no, that's, that's a penalty box. (laughs) So they didn't know how to communicate this to your team. So someone who understood that in the process would then go back to their team and say, you know the the great leaders. Hey team, like I, I've been doing a bunch of work on myself. Here are my bright lines. Here's what's really important to me. By the way, I will always give trust first. You can always trust me. I will never violate your confidence. But here are the things for me in which trust can be broken. And and honestly, it's really hard for me to, it, to come back for that once once it's broken. If you're five late st- minutes late to a meeting with me, but you come in with like a better solution or an idea, like <laughs> I'm all good with that. So. There were just countless examples where these core values had really like shown up in this person's life and leadership. And not only did they not know it, they couldn't connect the dots to why it was so important mm. to them. But, but doing so, I, I think, had implications both inside and outside of work, you know, when they think about their friends and a lot, and a lot of that stuff.
1: All right. So if I'm hearing you correctly, people, we, we have all of these, these scripts, these deeply held beliefs, these programs, the way we're wired and we're walking through life and we don't, we're not aware of them necessarily. And the work that you've done to build spiritual capacities to help people understand what are those for example, trust. And then once you know what they are, you help them uncover some stories that help them understand it even more. And then that allows them to articulate why they're doing what they're doing. And in the process of having those conversations, trust in particular, they're able to build trust back to psychological safety and therefore work more effectively both at work and at home. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
0: Yes. And I'll give you another example just, just from a difference is that like there's some people who have a real problem solving mindset. And mm-hmm. I've seen particularly with leaders, they are suff- they, they realize they are suffocating their teams because they have been coaching them to bring all the problems and solve it. And I was like, look, you you need problems to be solved. That's what gives you enjoyment. But what if as a leader you thought about getting that same sort of reward center from teaching your team how to solve problems and then coming to you saying, They solve this problem because those leaders almost always struggled with micromanagement because they were seen as such good problem solvers that everyone just brought them on the problem. So again, I think it is if you're really trying to rise as a level four or five leader, you can be a decent manager without doing any of this work, but you have to lead authentically to yourself. And so this is stripping a lot of that down so that people understand. I'm not going to lead really well, like someone who just is deep. Trust is important to them and a core principle, they are just not going to lead really well with, yeah, yeah, go do whatever. Like, that's just not, it's mm-hmm. just not who they are. And to think you're going to change a 30 or 40 year old who's been carrying this around for 20 years rather than using it as a strength, I think is a huge miscalculation.
1: Mm, so good. Um, just to clarify, you use the term level four or five leader. What's in your brain? What are you thinking when you say that?
0: yeah I think that that comes from uh, Jim Collins's uh, work on sort of, you know, there's I think I'm going to get these not totally right now, but okay. three is kind of like a competent manager. Yeah. a level five leader is sort of transcendent leader who basically, you know makes everyone around them better, right? It is not uh, it is not about them. It is sort of about the exponential effect that they have on their team and there's labels and all the things. but at a high level, you know I think level five leadership has sort of been identified as the pinnacle of of leadership, okay. these are leaders who are not telling anyone what to do. Right? They are leading kind of from the bottom, and they have millions of people uh-huh. who want okay. to follow them. Yeah.
1: All right. Yeah. In case people were like, "What's a level five leader?" I want no, to be no. a level five leader. Okay. So let's go to an intellectual capacity. It's interesting to me as as thinking about this. You you put feedback, the ability to give and receive feedback, even in difficult situations, as as a tenet of intellectual capacity. Talk about that and and if you can give us one or two pieces of advice.
0: Yeah, feedback, unfortunately, has become very personalized and personal attacks. But if you're trying to improve, right, there are always things that we can do better. But those messages have to be given in a way and received in a way. And a lot of people just aren't taught this or trained this. Um, I'll give you an example. I mean, one of the biggest problems that we have and that i would assume a lot of organizations have first-time managers are not really good managers they're doing a lot of things for the first time and the thing that they struggle with most is performance issues on their team and knowing how to have these frank conversations that they never had before so i got frustrated after years of like hearing these massive disconnects where, like oh did joe and you know sarah have this conversation oh they did yeah they're totally on the same page and then there's a total blow up Months later, and I go in and I read the notes in the performance review system, and I'm like, I don't know, like, kind of seems clear to me. Like, I don't know why Joe's so surprised. People don't know how to have these conversations. So, we actually created a training as part of our leadership thing. We brought people in a room, we gave them, I called it Law and Order because it was ripped from the headlines. And we gave, you know, Joe is a manager a new manager and he has Sally on his team. Sally's coming in. She's in her first 90 days and she thinks she's crushing it and she wants to ask about a raise. And Joe thinks that Sally is not going to make it and has to start a conversation of this might not be the right thing. And both of them don't know the other narrative. And they would do this in front of 20 people. And the thing we watch them have the conversation and it was painful. Like it was dancing around. And you can see why after this conversation, they don't believe the same thing. And so I think I did this five or six times with 20 people. And after three minutes, every time, I would raise my hand and say, everyone give Joe, play in the character Joe in the audience raise your hand if you think that, that Sally knows after a conversation with Joe that her job is on the line. They've been talking for 10 minutes. Not one person raised their hand anytime we ever did it and so we'd have a discussion around hey joe like you're you're doing the shit sandwich you're dancing like you're doing everything but having the like real conversation here let's start this everyone would give feedback in the audience here's what i heard and by the way sally's like it's a whole thing's uncomfortable to watch and this is fake totally fake and like it's so awkward to watch because they're both dancing around what they want to say and in the second time the character playing joe starts again and says look Sally, like, I need to talk to you about something. This isn't going to be comfortable. And they go into a frank conversation and they have a, re- and, and it's just like, it's night and day. And I realized, God, again, I, why are we surprised that people don't know how to do something that they haven't had any practice on? And normally you would practice this in real life and it would be terrible.
1: Wow. So good. And did you see a dramatic improvement?
0: Yeah. And I, I actually learned stuff watching it. Um, I, I had to have one of those conversations I think a couple of months after the last training and we had talked about these different tactics and watched people do them, I actually hadn't really totally done that before, but I, I got on the call with that person and said, look, we're about to have a really difficult conversation and just started it that way. And it was so much better. And look, some people might think like, here's the thing. One thing about capacity is it's not about doing more. It is actually about getting more done with less energy. So let's say you're a new manager and you're about to have one of these conversations for the first time. So what's going to happen is you're going to lose five nights of sleep, right? You're going to be, your other work is all going to fall apart. You're going to like be so stressed about this. You are going to blow the conversation and Sally's not going to know that this is a problem. Then two months later, there's going to be a whole mess because, you know, HR is going to say, well, what's going on with Sally? And Sally's like, where's my raise? And Sally's going on a performance review. It's actually so much more energy and mess than when you get... I, intellectual capacity is like upgrading your operating system. When you learn how to do something better, smarter, and faster, you don't lose five hours of sleep. You go into this. You have a super clear conversation. Sally is not psyched, but Sally actually appreciates hearing the truth. And you're going to help Sally start to find the job that Sally needs to find now. I, I think people miss the thing where, again, that should take one-tenth of the output you know, <laughs> that, the, <laughs> that the other example took. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Yeah. So as I'm listening to you say this, a couple of thoughts are coming to mind. One is that this isn't just building uh, the ability to give feedback isn't just building intellectual capacity. It's actually building physical capacity and emotional capacity. capacity. But the other thing that I'm hearing is that we go back to your principal thesis, which is a company that can grow is one where the people can grow as fast, if not faster than the company. That is why this building of giving feedback is so central because it allows you to get better a lot faster
0: yeah and feedback doesn't work on most companies because again they don't know how to give it they haven't been taught it's all give uh, it's all gift it's all given <laughs> in a personalized <laughs> thing which is an attack you know versus we like a framework called situation behavior outcome like what happened? what was the action? what was the result or outcome Ideally why it was negative to that person. Here's a common example I have talked to so many people who are damaged years later, they have PTSD of being told. uh, The feedback was about a characteristic. It was about something they were, something they couldn't fix or improve. This would be the same thing I'd say you could do to a child inadvertently. There's a difference between doing something that's not smart and not being smart. Mm -hmm. So here's a classic example. I am sure that you have seen this. We all run into people who in our work who are not very strategic, right? And Uh, Have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone who's not strategic about why they're not strategic? It goes horribly, particularly if you tell the person you're just not strategic. Well, Mm -hmm. oh, that's a character flaw that I can't fix. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? And really, if they aren't, they won't know what to do with that. So that's a separate thing. There's a real difference of saying, hey, in that presentation to the client, it was really lacking strategic insight. And here are three or four examples where the client was looking for strategy and we really didn't deliver. We delivered them tactics. Now it may turn out that the person is not strategic and that's why they can't do that. But you need to start from a place of the outcome or the work product, not mm. you don't have this gene. Cause again, that doesn't seem fixable, does it? If I tell you you don't have a if you're not smart or you're not strategic or, or otherwise. I mean, I heard a child development psychologist years ago. Say to a group of parents, which I I've kept this the day, she said, you should never tell your kids that they're smart or not smart. Both are equally as bad, right? You want to tell them they did something smart or they did something not smart rather than tell them they're dumb or give them a free pass on all the stupid things they were doing because you're giving them telling them they're just perpetually smart. And that always sort of stayed with me.
1: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me of all the work by uh, Heidi Grant and obviously Growth Mindset. But this idea, she wrote an article called The Trouble with Bright Kids, which basically said, if you have this identity of you're smart, then you do things to reinforce that. And then you don't, you get locked into this place of I don't want to do anything that will ever make me look dumb, because then my identity will unravel. So is that why you talk about outcome oriented goals instead of input oriented goals? Is that where your brain's going on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, that a lot. also really gets into the the physical piece. But input-oriented goals just value the amount of work that someone does irrespective of the outcome. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of comes out of micromanagement. Again, as I said, sales examples are so easy. Do you value the salesperson who makes 100 phone calls in a week, works 80 hours, and sells $100,000? Or the one that makes half the phone calls, half the hours, and sells $200,000? Everyone I know would take salesperson B- nine times out of 10. But in areas that are a little more subjective outside of sales, we really struggle. We will literally look at, I had a boss, I don't tell this story a lot, but I had a boss who just valued FaceTime so much in my 20s that I ran an experiment. I came into the office at seven o'clock every morning, I beat him to work, uh, and I played games on my computer for two hours. And his satisfaction of my performance went up dramatically that week because I was in the office before he got there. That's wow. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. It's just rewar- you're rewarding like butts in seat, not yeah. did this person accomplish the goals or whatever they were supposed to do.
1: Yeah, it's interesting when you say that, because part of me, it, there, there's a paradox because you want the outcome oriented goals. And at the same time, we also know that there are certain things, certain processes, if those are in place, certain behaviors will over time lead to certain outcomes. But you just need to be really careful about what inputs those are.
0: Correct. And I, I think, but think about an organization that says, hey, this quarter, we really want to prioritize developing our next level of talent, right? But not only is that sort of an input goal, it's not clear what it is. And then they say, versus an organization, look, our Our focus is on prioritizing our next level of talent over the next quarter. So for each of our 10 leaders, I want three people on your team. And I want, you know, what did it? I want the next steps for them, what they need to work on, and submit me a development plan. And then I have 30 development plans for the next level of of leaders. So being clear on what it the goal actually meant or what the objective was. The objective wasn't you to think a lot. about mm-hmm. it which you might right. have said I thought about this daily. I mean, we had meetings about this, I thought about this. The <laughs> goal is for the talent manager in the organization to have 30 people identified and know like what the next steps are. But this is actually an advantage that contractors have over employees, right? At the end of the month when you have a contractor, think about this. You don't just take their out. You're like, what did you do? What did you produce? Like there's an accountability on paying the bill. Employees, you pay the bill mm-hmm. you know, whether they were in meetings all month or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about physical capacity now,
0: yeah. so you know we've covered it a little bit, particularly around I think prioritization, but th- there's a lot of things. And as I mentioned in the recap, I think more than ever with people working from home and that separation, the organization actually needs to help people have some separation. They need to have some time off. Like there are some statistics that are pretty crazy where where the World Health Organization has says that people who work more than fifty five hours a week have a thirty five percent greater chance of stroke and and a 17% chance of heart disease. And they estimated in their last study that like almost, I think 745,000 people died of overwork in, in 2017. Wow! And this is like, again, overwork not necessarily clearly aligned to outcomes. And, you know, an example of this that's not talked about that I think sort of, I think we put a nail in the coffin of maybe this last generation of the C. if you think about ceos maybe five ten years ago were bragging about not sleeping it's comforting to see more bragging about getting a full night's sleep but a story i talk about in the book which i don't think is talked about enough was was marissa meyer so marissa meyer took over in 2012 as the ceo of yahoo she had this meteoric rise at google where she i i think led like maps and search and other things and was one of the first 50 or so employees. But you know she has a little bit of a different genetic makeup, I think, and <laughs> doesn't, doesn't need to sleep. And, and there were a lot of articles of her coming into Yahoo bragging about like her 100-hour work weeks, her 130-hour work week, which if you do the math on that, it doesn't even work over five days. But if you spread it over seven days, that's 18 hours a day of work. So you have six left <laughs> to eat, sleep, and, and have a life. And she came into Yahoo and she made a whole big think and because I I think she was it, after she was pointed came out she was pregnant um she came back to work she was kind of made let reporters know she was working from her hospital bed came back to work two weeks later and kind of opened a nursery next to her office all the while telling the rest of the women at Yahoo not to emulate what she was doing and that they should do what was right for them I always say do what I do what I say not as I do doesn't really work for parents or leaders <laughs> So Yahoo was just this during her time. This just this go-go culture of you know workaholic. They acquired in her four five years there. They acquired fifty three acquisitions for two billion dollars, which I think were ostensibly worth zero dollars in the end. And Yahoo actually had the stake in Alibaba, which was worth more than Yahoo. So the stock price did go up. But those who have looked at it is that. Despite Yahoo doing all these acquisitions, everyone working nonstop, crazy, like just destroyed value over years. I think in her last year, 30% of the people said that Yahoo was a, was a good place to work. And she was eventually um terminated and lost a couple of years of her bonus for not paying attention to a security breach that that was brought up. And and you know, for someone who was at the top of the world, she hasn't even been mentioned in a Job search or CEO search, and then I'm sure that she doesn't have to work. But it it was just a really interesting case study in like it just didn't work. Like no one's going to say that that Marissa Meyer or her team or anyone at Yahoo like didn't work hard, but I'm just not sure they worked smart.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm 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 finding myself really thinking about those statistics that you trotted out that if you work more than 55 hours a week, you're yeah. going to potentially be at risk of a stroke. And just thinking about my own career, I started in investment banking. <laughs> I was really proud of those 80 to 90 hour work weeks. And yeah,
0: it used to be a badge of honor, right?
1: Yeah, absolute badge of honor. And, and obviously, the story from Marissa Meyer, uh, that's carried through to just a few years ago, I think that's one of the gifts of the pandemic, don't you? That we really shifted how we think about physical capacity and the work that we do.
0: Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The shop pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcasts. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is Stop Eliminating Perfectly Good Candidates by Asking Them the Wrong Questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on Leadership, to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, The Big Idea, HBR Magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code elevate right now to take advantage of this great offer. again, Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code elevate to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. Yeah, I think it's a gift for those who are enlightened. And I think it's a bag of coal for those who aren't because I think there are still some leaders out there, you know, and now with the capital, not as easy and cheap who are, are like, yes, I mean, Elon Musk tried that. We are going to work hard and all night and Everyone's like, no, (laughs) you know, you can't even get, and that's the 40 year olds, right. Who are mid-career and families. You can't even get a lot of 20 year olds to do that anymore. They're so burnt out from their college and high school. Excellent. I mean, that way you could always count on the 20 year olds to work 80 or 90 hours a week. Right. And I, I I just don't think a leader going out with this, like, I'm not saying, look, I worked hard. I used to work people like you, like, I'm not saying you generally, you know, not working hard is not a great solution, but. But wearing that as a badge of honor and going out and saying, our differentiator is that we are just going to work people to death and ourselves to death, I'm just not sure post-global mm-hmm. pandemic is going is to really gonna work. work for right. many organizations.
1: Right. So building physical pa- capacity is building capacity. How would you summarize that? Let, let me try and then you see if this works. Is It's giving people uh, the, the tools and the space to make sure they are healthy, to make sure that they're getting enough sleep, to make sure that they're exercising, to make sure that they are physically capable of having the stamina required. And I guess the the intellectual acuity, because obviously your body affects your brain, they have the acuity to do good work.
0: So A, you said it better than I did. I used to always joke and say, look, it's not like the person who doesn't sleep and who's a mess and drinks too much and whatever shows up in your office place and flips the switch and is a different person. Mm-hmm. Now they're not even need to walk in your office. Not, now they turn on a computer. It's from the same mm-hmm. place. Right. So, so even more than ever, this is, this just, this bleeds over and, you know, just on leaders, there's just some small things like for both team leaders. And I'll just give you a couple of example of things that I changed, you know, mm-hmm. years ago. So, People need a break. They need they're actually working more from home. You need to let them have a break outside of work, not email call them all hours, like really recover. I mean, we have we have uh have a program where we have paid for part of people's vacation as part of a wellness reimbursement if they actually stay offline. I learned years oh, ago.
1: Oh, that's so good. <laughs> if they stay offline, you'll pay for part of the vacation.
0: Yeah, both because that's we great. want them to have a real break. Yep. And and two, there are a lot of micromanagers who run so many things through them that they can't actually go. I've always found like maternity leaves are amazing ways for someone to come back and elevate their job because they have to figure out how does this stuff not run through me for, for a couple months. And once they do that, they're like, well, I can I can take on new responsibilities. Another tactic I realized years ago is like, I used wait, to... Go, wait, wait, I want to stop sorry. for a second. Yeah. I
1: love the idea <laughs> of using maternity leave as a way to see, is this person capable of thinking really strategically and upping their game? And so the goal could be is anybody who goes on mat leave, this is your opportunity.
0: Yeah, you can come back to not 50% of what you were doing before. You figured out how to have other people or other do it at all, you know, and and you can can take higher level work. Yeah.
1: I love it. Okay. Keep going. You said you had another,
0: Uh, honestly, the vacation thing, I'll be honest, a lot of employees are the problem, right? They can't take a day off because they've, they're copied on every email. They run it through them. It actually forces them to both have some real vacation and detangle themselves from, yeah. From everything. I remember talking to one of our leaders years ago, didn't last. And she was like, CC'd on every distribution list, every client. I was like, this just doesn't work. This mm-hmm. person just couldn't let go. They just couldn't. And by the way, that went into their personal life, their parenting life. Like it was very consistent throughout everything. So yeah. just a couple of other tactics. Again, telling people, oh, take a vacation, take a vacation. But you ever email me on vacation and I respond right away. Again, what am I modeling? So an out of office hey i'm going on vacation next week if there's an emergency call my cell phone you guys got it i'm not going to respond like these are important signals the other thing i I actually hear a lot more people doing and i picked up on this years ago so saturday morning when my kids were younger house was quiet i'd get up when, when you know before the pandemic when i could get up early and i go through a bunch of emails that i haven't caught up on the week and then I'd send them to people and then they'd reply because I'm the CEO and I'm emailing them on the weekend. And I, I didn't want them to It's just when that was good for me. I pretty much the last couple of years, if I email anyone, you know, not my executive team or particularly people below me, because I'm conscious of sort of the power dynamic level wise, you know, not no one's below me. Um, but I just, I think people, anyone gets an email from the CEO and they panic yeah. respond to it. Uh, I do delayed delivery until 8am the next work day. And yeah. I, that has just been a great, practice. I think it allows me to do what I want to do. It looks like I'm really productive at 8am in the morning, even if I'm sleeping on on the next workday. But people know that. And I think they appreciate it. And I I don't want a response over the weekend. But like, that was actually a good time for me to sit down and quietly respond to those emails.
1: Mm -hmm. So good. All right. Those are some great, great suggestions. I love the, the vacation piece as well of paying people if they'll actually stay offline. That's Nice putting those incentives.
0: Incentives <laughs> drive behavior, right? Yeah, so incentives
1: <laughs> are good. Yeah. All right. So let's talk very briefly about the emotional capacity. And I want to I want to put two pieces together. And we started to talk about this idea of feedback, but I, I do think that building emotional capacity, and I'm going to put two things together. I don't know if this is where you're going. Let's see where you go with it. Is that your ability as a leader to manage underperformers? Is building emotional capacity. So let's talk about how do you manage underperformers? And also, is there a way to identify people who are going to underperform when you're hiring?
0: Yeah. So, you know, we talked about in spiritual capacity, a lot of it is understanding yourself. I think in emotional capacity, this is again psychological safety, trust at scale, a lot of communication styles. So, what do I know about Whitney that maybe help me understand a problem or a dynamic that we're having or how am I willing to have these conversations and address, you know, these issues before they become even worse because they never go away <laughs> when you sort of look at it and and you know, it actually has a a whole piece of a different part of emotional capacity which is this ownership agency and control. Again, what do I what do I control in this versus what am I, I have just happening. So underperformance has a few different components. Um it definitely probably crosses a, a, on intellectual and emotional, but you got to understand the first thing, which is, is someone just not a fit for the culture? Are they not a fit for the values? It's just not going to work. And you can lie to yourself and, tell, and wait and delay and tell yourself all kinds of stories. Or or again, I think sometimes it's it's kind to be honest you know, with people and have a conversation that this just doesn't seem like the right environment for you. And I'm just not sure you're going to be successful here. So the, there's the values piece. Then there's, are they good at the job piece, or are they as the company keeps changing and growing, are they able to do that job or take the the role that we need? And mm-hmm. that comes a lot into this ongoing, willing to have conversations, feedback, learning. You know, a lot of times, and I talk about this in the book, someone has been put into a managerial role and they're not a good manager and they don't want to manage. Well, you could say you're a bad manager and you could fire them, or you could have a conversation. Whitney, you know, I've at what I've actually seen from this is. And, and I remember a specific conversation like this where we moved someone into a contributor role, you just seem to really want to be about you and your production, which is great <laughs> in certain roles. I mean, we need this in an engineer or sales or even marketing, but your team's not feeling any love. You don't seem to be motivated by the success of your team. You seem to be motivated. like So maybe this wasn't the right choice and maybe there's a role we can move you into that really is about production and it'll give you what you're looking for and doesn't have an upside, I think one of the biggest organizational mistakes is telling people they can only grow if they manage people. I mean, organizations need salespeople that sell 10 million a year. They need brilliant engineers that come up with new products, not manage teams of, of 10 engineers. So I think the ability to dig in and figure out, is this a solvable problem? Is this a not a solvable problem? Can we train you? And then really know, like, be willing to be honest with yourself and the person about this is going to work or it's not going to work. I mean, we, we've we pioneered a, a whole program. It used to be called uh, Mindful Transition. We pivoted the name to, it was my topic of my TEDx talk, uh, to career um, CEP, now I'm missing the middle world. I think it's career uh, engagement program, sorry. And, and the whole premise of that is honest discussions. So when we think that it's just not going to work out with an employee, that we start a discussion and work them on a path, maybe over multiple months to find a better job or find something that's a fit. Or the inverse. There is the psychological safety that anyone who comes and says, I don't think this is right for me. We're in a client service company. We do not want people leaving suddenly. It's terrible for our clients and for business. They can come to us suddenly. We've never walked someone in the door and say, look, I don't think this is right. I, I think I'd like to start kind of a process out and they can get the support they need. And again, we can have them start interviewing and working out and figuring out who's going to replace it and work with them together. We all pretend for some reason in a world where the average person works for like two years that we expect people to work forever. And it's like this huge shock and betrayal and surprise when it doesn't work out. Even at Google and the top places on Glassdoor, it's like 2.2 years. I think we're just trying to acknowledge the reality and say, how do we make leaving not a bad thing, not a scarlet letter thing. And, and again, the more that someone's willing to be truthful and vulnerable, the more supportive we are of them. Like, Mm frankly like the people that have been super open not we've we've done really accommodating things for them the people who listen to all of this stuff and then give us one day's notice like we're not yeah.
1: We're not super thrilled about that. Uh-huh. Yeah. It is so interesting, isn't it? We think that we talk about work like it's going to be your one true love. And it's just, it's just not that. I mean, and you know, I talk about S curves. I mean, you're going to get yeah. to the top of an S-curve. And so when you get to the top, what is that going to look like? And I, I love that you're positively reinforcing that when someone comes and talks to you and is transparent about okay, I'm ready to do something new, then you're willing to work with them. It becomes amicable, they become a brand ambassador for you over time as well, because they felt like you treated them well as they jumped to their new, their next S-curve.
0: Yeah. As you said, we're just, we're still pretending like it's this horrible thing when we leave or otherwise when it we're just not in a world of lifetime employment anymore. I think it'd be better to be a little more, you know, yeah. honest and objective about where we are.
1: Right. All right. So you've talked about these four capacities. I would love for you to share with us um, a success story of what capacity building can look like where a person has grown as quickly as actually who's grown perhaps even faster than your organization what's that success story
0: which is hard Um, (laughs) yeah Uh so we have uh, a great story uh, at ap and that's uh, one of our leadership team members uh, sarah days so sarah actually came years ago i think 10 years ago now um, we used to get most of our employees off craigslist now i'm dating myself but we we actually needed like an seo copywriter we had the affiliate part of our business which is really the what we do today and we had this digital strategy part and um sarah came in and did some freelance work and was just great and just anytime we ever gave her something she was just like up to the challenge wanted to learn wanted to get better and eventually she she was leading our digital strategy team which was the minority of our business the majority of our business had another leader who decided to take a role uh, overseas for a couple years. Um, her husband got sort of like a government tour of duty and we were going to need a new head of that practice. And that's a totally different area, kind of different nuance. And Sarah sort of raised her hand and was like, you know, I'll do it. I'm like, you don't know anything about this. Um, but she was just so resolute and sort of just always willing to like dive in, learn, get the feedback. Like inter- emotional capacity, like she's just a steady, you know. People just you rely on them. They're just steady. We always joke like the harder something is, sometimes the the calmer she is. And so we actually decided, like, despite having no experience in this part of the business, that like we were better off. We we knew she was a culture fit. Um, you know, giving her a chance at this, she she learned the business. Uh, you know, grew at every time, and and is now global chief client officer. Uh, with over 200 people on her team running the biggest part of our, our organization. I think we joke, we like to think, I think it was probably the highest return ever on a Craigslist uh, ad in terms of <laughs> someone we probably hired to do some SEO copywriting uh-huh. uh, for $30 uh-huh. an hour. But again, not only did Sarah demonstrate all those elements of capacity, she just was always looking to get better at all of them. And it's just not a surprise to me at all where she is today.
1: Mm, what a great example of your model. All right. So where can people learn about your book?
0: Yeah. So it's Elevate Your Team, uh, Amazon. It's it's listed with everything at at robertglazer.com. Uh, there's also a short code for the book, E-Y-T, Elevate Your Team, E-Y-T book.com. And uh, again, it should be on sale uh, today and over the next couple of weeks and months anywhere books are sold.
1: All right. And so um, just a PS to you all is that there is a very delightful reveal at the end about Robert's own capacity building, but we are not going to share that here. You just need to buy the book so you can read it. All right, so as we start to wrap up, I, I want to turn the tables on you and ask you your favorite question, which is what is a personal or professional mistake that you've made and what did you learn from it? And... It needs to be, if you possibly can, a story that you haven't told very many times. Uh,
0: I won't tell a specific story of this because it would involve uh, individuals. But you know, a lot of times we talk about something, not or write about something to clarify their own thoughts on it. And and I will say, as it and it relates to a lot of themes in this book, I have so many times in my life known the right decision, the right thing to do, particularly around different people issues. And we'll talk about, you know, talking about the book when you just know someone's not going to make it. And uh, someone once told me the longest time in an entrepreneur's life is the time between what they know what they have to do and do it. And I have tried to talk myself out of difficult conversations and it will get better and let it go. And let me just wait a couple months. And I can tell you it is never ever once made it better and i think i've gotten a little better at doing this but you know i always felt my job was to be the visionary and lift people up and i you know i struggled with you know some of these things that were part of my job responsibility which is why i don't do that job anymore um (laughs) uh, but yeah i i if that could be a cautionary tale to other people and and i see it like a lot of times we just know what we need to do like Mm -hmm. we know what we need to do and then we twist ourselves in pretzels, not doing it because it's hard. The trick on this is the eventual blow up conversation, whatever you are forced to have is much worse than the one that you could have had earlier.
1: Yeah. Well, so what I hear you saying is a part of a part of capacity building is closing that gap faster between yes. knowing what to do and doing it.
0: Yes, that would be a learning from your mistakes, which I while well, I am getting better at I have not
1: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: mastered that in, in any way, shape or form.
1: Actually, let me ask you another quick question. Um, Can you think about if you look at the time between when you know you need to give someone feedback on something and when you do give that feedback, if five years ago, it took you three months, how fast do you do it now?
0: I do it pretty quickly. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I would tell this to people. The trick for me a little bit was I spent a lot of my time. Thinking about what's next and what's around the corner, and sometimes I'm talking about something that is too early for everyone else to see. And I've even seen the opposite, where people on my team like, "Hey, look, there's a train, you know, barreling around the corner, and it's coming out." And they're like, "It's beautiful and it's sunny out." And I'm like, "No, nope. I just have this feeling." And and sometimes no matter how much you try to do that within a group, they actually until they see the lights, you can't get people on board. So so there is a balance between things that I need to do individually that are just on me that I've tried to get faster at. On the other side, when you're trying to get the organization to rally or something, I think you need to like you need to take people with you and show them around the corner, uh, or else, like I, I have been I've been really right on a lot of things, but too early. <laughs> And, and then i I get frustrated that people weren't listening to me, but I realized, again, from a leadership standpoint, that's on me. like i i wasn't I wasn't giving them the evidence or showing them around the corner to see kind of what I was seeing.
1: Mm. all right. So a question that I typically like to ask, and we've got this is our penultimate question is what in this conversation, um you know, you flipped it and you were being interviewed. Uh, what in this conversation was useful for you?
0: Yeah, you know, I I I talk a lot about how these capacities intersect with each other and you know, sometimes when I'm talking to people it is very nuanced conversations like A B and Z. But if you saw how many times it bounced around and I think I think you made the exact point that I make a lot, particularly I think people understand it about physical capacity. Like when you're exhausted, when you're frustrated, like your relationships go to crap, your planning and learning and discipline <laughs> crap, like all all these things. I I think was interesting to me was just seeing almost even different connections and pathways between these things because I always say they're interconnected, but there were some topics where we jumped around which actually went through two or three of them at, at one time
1: uh-huh huh so what was useful for you was just that reinforcement of you know that they're connected you talk about their being connected and then in the course of our conversation, you saw that yet again they are connected.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were talking about sort of dealing with people and performance in the context of emotional capacity, and I, I always think about it in a li- intellectual capacity, but it is equal or more parts emotional capacity. So I, it was interesting another another lens on that. I can know what to do, but I can be too afraid to do it, right?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, okay, so Robert, any final thoughts as we wrap up?
0: No, I think we've left the listeners with uh, with plenty at this point. <laughs>
1: So thank you. Well, my final thoughts are thank you for letting me take over your show for the day. It was a lot of fun and I learned a ton.
0: Well, thanks, Whitney. You are, you are our first guest host. You are our best guest host by far. And I hope we uh, we get to do it again, chance to do it again. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. Links to Elevate Your Team are available in the show notes. And I'd really appreciate it if you consider buying a copy of the book at eytbook.com. Plus, it's even available as a 99 cent ebook, but only until this Friday during launch week. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network.